My first reaction was, oh Lord, this is happening faster than expected. And so we have a lot of work to do. And the window to do that work has now significantly shrunk from what we previously thought it was. And we really need to get going. That's what I took away from the IPCC report. That was Bill Olfelder from The Nature Conservancy. I'm guessing that most of our listeners are aware of the recent report released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which rocked the environmental world. The report made clear that we have less time than previously thought to prevent some of the most catastrophic effects of climate change. Our newest contributor to the podcast, Emma Tyrell, reached out to Bill to get his perspective on this report as a representative of one of the largest environmental NGOs in the world. You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. This is episode 167. start off by just introducing yourself and kind of the work you do at the Nature Conservancy. Sure. Um, my name is Bill Olfelder, and I'm the executive director of the Nature Conservancy in New York. And I've worked for the Nature Conservancy for almost 25 years, and I spent time working overseas, mostly in South America, but I've also worked in the Caribbean and Mongolia for the organization. I'm really focused on New York, based in New York City, but really thinking about the entire state of New York and how it fits nationally and globally uh, in issues like climate change. Excellent. And what kind of work or what kind of projects have you done while you've been at the Conservancy? Where does one begin? Uh, (laughs) Well, what I actually really think that the experience overseas and the experience in New York is invaluable to me. And I started out really in the field as a young uh, conservationist just out of graduate school, um, really working with in foreign countries about creating stronger national parks and how do you involve local communities and protect areas management? Um, how do you ensure that park agencies and, and other government agencies are strong and equipped to fulfill the, the mandates that they have? And over time, I think my career has evolved in similar ways to the way the Nature Conservancy has. And today, the organization, most people know us for buying land and managing land, and that is a big part of who we are and and who we've been. But the Nature Conservancy is really focused on solving the big environmental challenges of our time. And the organization today is in almost 75 countries around the world, as well as all 50 states. So I really kind of started out as jokingly say like a parky, you know, somebody mm-hmm. focus on how do you effectively manage parks to now thinking about bigger issues, climate change, providing food and water sustainably. How do you build healthy cities in addition to all the protecting land and water that we've done historically? So it's, it's in both challenging and great to grow and expand with the organization and the mission. As you know, the earlier this month, the UN published a report through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I can read the stats here stating that and by 2040, we'll reach about a 1.5 degree Celsius increase from pre-industrial levels. I mean, what were your first reactions as, you know, just a person who is passionate by the environment and then basically your reactions as someone who works as part of an environmental organization? 
my first reaction was, oh, Lord. Yeah. Uh, and I'm somebody who is known as and thinks of themselves as an optimist. Mm-hmm. And I think that this was a very sobering scientific message about where the world finds itself today. And I, and I think what the key sort of top line takeaways are, one, that this is happening faster than expected. So the models are all coming true, but it's happening in the nearer term than people thought. Well, a lot of people have been focused on a two degree Celsius change, which is what is in the Paris Climate Accord and the the number under which we want to stay. 1.5, and this is going to sound kind of funny math, is far closer to two degrees Celsius than it is one degree. And what I mean by that is we're basically already at one degree Celsius warming today, and we're seeing the effects of climate change. And, you know, obviously we can talk more about that. But 1.5 feels a lot more like two than it does today. And that is coming. And so we have a lot of work to do. And the window to do that work has now significantly shrunk from what we previously thought it was. And we really need to get going. That's what I took away from the IPCC report. Right. And I know that from a lot of the reaction from this report, it's like you said, people saying, you know, Recycling is just not enough. We need to do big changes. And as your role as the executive director in New York, I've seen that you've also have a hand in doing some kind of big programs with the Nature Conservancy as well. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I would say it's it's both categories of things. So there are these very big or actually we'll call them like massive system level changes. And I think in some ways are Albany carbon deal represents that. And, and, and it, it is a great project. And as somebody who holds a degree in forestry, I love forest projects as helping solve climate change. And I would argue at the same time, the decisions that we make in our lives every single day, how we go to work, uh, whether, you know, recycling or not, composting or not, where we buy our electricity from, whether we plant trees or All of those behaviors send important market signals as well and signals to the world about what people want and the world they want. And to your point, there have to be big changes. And I'll I'll talk about two. Um, So one, harness the power of nature to help solve the climate change challenge. Uh, The Conservancy released a report, some of our top scientists about a year ago, which says that essentially a third of the Paris Climate Accord can be the goal of keeping warming under two degrees Celsius can be achieved through nature. So improved forest management, um, better agricultural lands management. So things like putting cover crops uh, between harvesting cycles and things like that. There are companies out there in the United States, right now it's a voluntary market, who are looking to offset their carbon emissions and saying, hey, you know, we emitted this amount of carbon, we're making available this amount of resources to offset our carbon pollution. And so we found a willing seller of carbon in Albany to say, hey, we've got 6,400 acres of forests that if we could receive resources, we can manage those in a way they're going to keep providing the city of Albany with clean water, but we're also going to keep the natural carbon locked up in that standing forest. So it was a way uh, for 
these carbon credits to do something really good to combat climate change, but also have other benefits for clean water and wildlife. And, and, and you can also structure these deals in ways that they'd be great for recreation and, and local aesthetics and, and economy. So that's one way that this will happen. The other is changing markets. And, you know, the same day that the IPCC report came out, the Nobel Prize in Economics was awarded. And that was not coincidence. Um, and there was a lot in that about other ways that climate change can be addressed. Right. I'm glad that you brought that up because the Nobel Prize for Economics was awarded to Bill Nordhaus, who has you know spent his whole life's work on carbon taxation and saying that the old kind of cap and trade, which is the idea that you know each each organization is allowed to emit a certain right. you know amount of carbon, so there's a general level. But what was your take on the Nobel Prize for carbon taxation? So Professor Nordhaus is the the, the father of the concept of putting a price on carbon. And the point that when you emit carbon pollution, while you're generating certain benefits because you're producing energy, you're producing a whole series of costs, costs to human health, costs to warming of the planet, etc. And his idea was we ought to be charging people for those negatives, those costs that they're uh, putting out in the world. And so his point is, let's do that. Let's do it at a national level, let's do it at a global level, and it would do multiple things. I mean, one is it drives down demand for carbon because it costs more, and so people are going to look for alternatives, but also it generates resources that could be used to tackle climate change. And right now, the Nature Conservancy, and it's going to be interesting, by the time this airs, we will know the answer on Election Day, but Washington State is running a ballot initiative right now and putting it to the people would they like to see a $35 per ton fee on carbon pollution on the big oil refineries that are in Washington state? And this would generate about a billion dollars a year. So you can argue that it will reduce the demand for carbon because it's going up, but the billion dollars will be invested in renewable energy sources, the power of nature to capture carbon and reduce uh, climate change, and then thirdly, help vulnerable communities in Washington state adapt in a climate changing world. So we need more of what Washington State is doing as an example of Professor Nordhaus's, you know, thinking. There must have been some great coordination there with the UN and the Nobel Committee. Yeah, I think I think what it recognizes is this is so real and this is the challenge of our time. And the IPCC you know, really the birth of that report was around the fact that there are a lot of very vulnerable countries in the world to climate change. So uh, starting with the low-lying island nations of the world saying, hey, two degrees, it's an admirable goal, but we actually have concerns that if it goes all the way to two degrees Celsius warming, it may be too late for us. And we need, let's look at at this point, a midway point between where we are today and where that would be. And so, you know, this team of scientists spent a year, you know, looking at all of that. And it's very clear that, yes, it's a very scary scenario and we have to get going now. And right. And the fact that that was going on, um, the Nobel panel is very world savvy and they made a great selection in the economists who they chose. 
Right. And interesting that you brought up that it was a lot of these island nations that were saying, you know, hey, like, I know we were settled on two degrees Celsius, but let's look into 1.5. I think from that point of view, especially people in the United States think like, oh, climate change may not affect me directly right now. But as you are based in New York and New York City, Manhattan is an island there is a great risk toward rising sea levels? It's a very important question. And and I'll preface my answer a little bit with the fact that everyone's going to be and is already being affected by climate change. Now, we may not see it and understand it, um, but it is happening everywhere. And over time, the effects will be disproportionate towards some people versus other. And as I say, I mean, climate change is going to be a great divider, I mean, between the haves and the have-nots. And that's true between countries with lots of resources and countries that have far fewer resources and within countries and cities and neighborhoods, who has resources and who's able to respond and who's not. And the projections for sea level rise are based on models of where things are going. New York can expect to lose about $100 billion worth of businesses and homes based in low-lying areas because of sea level rise and storm surge. But the models show that if we're able to stay within the goal of the Paris Climate Accord, we only lose about $10 billion. Now, that's a lot of money, and you know we're sitting here and talking about tens of billions of dollars, but it's an example of how beneficial it would be if we get out on top of this and do the work that we need to do sooner to prevent all of this loss. And, you know, the estimates are by the middle of the century, some of the reinsurance companies estimate that New York will be losing about $4 billion a year, suffering about $4 billion a year in damage from storm surge, hurricanes, and other, you know, climate-related disasters. So New York lost $20 billion worth of property and value as a result of Sandy. So it's essentially saying there will be a, the equivalent of a Hurricane Sandy every five years. Now, it may not be a catastrophic singular event like that. It'll be, you know, a handful of, of hurricanes or other kinds of um, storm and flooding events. But the numbers are so big. And I think that's one of the challenges, you know, that we that we have with climate change. And it just goes back to we have to change systems. And there's a lot we can do as individuals to help address this it's it's around us right now i mean i i was just out in washington state this summer and we well we first we went to oregon and then washington state and portland and seattle were the cities that had the two they were the cities with the worst air quality anywhere in the world in for certain days in august because there were so many wildfires in the pacific northwest which is tied and exacerbated by climate change so you know There I am, a New Yorker, worrying about sea level rise in New York City. I go to the Pacific Northwest, and now it's about air quality and lack of visibility and loss of forests and drinking water, watersheds. That's the problem out there. So people are going to be affected by climate change no matter where you are. Right. And especially after Hurricane Sandy, do you think New York was prepared for that storm when it hit? Absolutely not. And are we prepared? Prepared if another one hits today? Absolutely not. We are 
going in the right direction and there's a lot that we are doing and it's not enough, it's not fast enough. And so and that's true of New York City, it's true of New York State, and it's certainly true of the country. So we have to be investing more. And, and our the analysis shows that every dollar invested in climate protection, so taking the steps today to use natural infrastructure like dunes, wetlands, oyster reefs, mussel beds as protections on the coast, or planting trees in cities to bring down summertime temperatures, which are, you know, can a leading cause of morbidity and mortality, particularly among the very young and the very old. Every dollar invested saves you about $6 in damages and losses down the road. So it, these are smart investments. They're investments we'll see returns on, but we're not doing enough. And so, no, we weren't ready and we're not ready today. Can you talk a little bit about the inequality in climate change and how it affects people kind of on a local level? Sure. I mean, we're here in New York. We're sitting in Manhattan looking out the window today. Fortunately, beautiful sunny day, but there's a nor'easter coming this weekend, um, and they're talking about coastal flooding. So this isn't a hurricane, um, but this is an intense storm that's coming in a world where the sea level in New York has been rising, and for features of geology and topography here, New York is one of the places where sea level rise is going to be even greater than it will be felt in, in other places. And a couple of things. So in New York, uh, there was a history of building public housing in low-lying co coastal areas. So there was a time, and you know, Robert Moses was the person in city government at the time who really had a certain kind of vision, which included moving people away from the water or putting the poor closer to the water and has sort of having city center uh, inland. So when Sandy rolls in or any one of these big storms, who are some of the most vulnerable people? There's a lot of public housing out in these low-lying areas where they're going to be more deeply impacted than other parts of the city. Another example is when you look at heat maps of the city. So when you get a summertime heat wave where the highest temperatures are, and those are the neighborhoods with the lowest income levels. They're the ones that have the fewest trees. And, you know, putting trees in neighborhoods, it's pretty amazing. The combination of shade and then the moisture that's put in the air through photosynthesis can actually have a very meaningful reduction in, in summertime temperatures. And I would just argue it's better protecting the most at-risk and vulnerable people in New York. And this is really true of, of a lot of places, you know, all over the state and all over the country and around the world. As you said that, you know, we were not prepared for Sandy. We probably wouldn't be prepared for a Sandy Lake storm now. What can we do to get prepared? The thing that we're focused on at the Nature Conservancy is really the role that nature can play in better preparing us. And, and it is interesting. Um, so right after Hurricane Sandy, Governor Cuomo commissioned the 2100 Commission, and our um, CEO, Mark Tursek, served on, on the governor's commission. And it was essentially, that it was this question. What do we need to do to better prepare New York State, including New York City, for the next major storm and climate change in general? And I would say there are two things that Mark and the Nature Conservancy really focused on. One was this role of nature. So there is an important role for technology and engineering. You know, we're a very smart species. Um, we can create, uh, we can design, we can execute amazing things. But a lot of people, I would say, wanted kind of what would feel to them like silver bullet 
um, solution. So, oh, let's put a giant gate out near the Veranzano Narrows Bridge and protect us from sea level rise. But you quickly get to a point of like, well, what happens if there's a massive inland storm simultaneously and it's sending you know, so much water down the Hudson River, you've closed the gate, that water has nowhere to go, and it sort of all backs up in, in New York City. So let's get more creative, let's get more thoughtful, and let's think about the role of nature in making the city more resilient and safer. And so one of the things we did was um, look at a low-lying neighborhood out near JFK Airport, Howard Beach in Queens, which was eight feet underwater during Hurricane Sandy. We kind of went in with like, what would work here? And we partnered with a global engineering firm and we looked at three scenarios. One was a green only. So it would be dunes, berms, wetlands, mussel beds. Then we looked at a gray only, like what would you do with gates and walls, um, things like that. And then we looked at a hybrid approach. Lo and behold, the approach that made the most sense in terms of reduced risk from flooding, but also providing all kinds of other benefits like clean water, aesthetics, increased property value, was this hybrid approach with nature in it as well, where you had these natural features. So they're kind of like pop-up walls um, that could be put up when there's a risk of storm coming in low-lying areas and a gate at the canal to Howard Beach, but the rest was really all about nature and the role that nature can play in this. So that was one big piece is let's harness nature and you build a seawall or a sea gate, the minute that's built, it starts depreciating in value. So the natural assets, their value is enhanced over time. But the other thing, which is an uncomfortable subject, um, but the Nature Conservancy raised was we also need to be talking about getting people out of harm's way. There are people in places where they simply should not be in a sea level rising, storm surging world. And so, you know, there, you can call it retreat, you can call it manage retreat, I call it getting out of the way. But the idea, and at this point, the programs are voluntary, but we've been working out on Staten Island with one of the most affected neighborhoods in Hurricane Sandy, where people have said, I've had enough the high, a full moon high tide is flooding my neighborhood, much less when you get a hurricane blowing through here, it's time to move out. So we've been working with the state and the city and now a federal program to buy people out, scrape their homes, and then restore parkland and wetlands. So not only are you getting people out of harm's way, but you're enhancing the natural infrastructure, the natural features between the ocean and the neighborhood that's a little higher ground to better protect people in the future. So I would say that this was a very important epiphany that we all heard. There was kind of this discussion that we have to build our way to a solution. And I think today New York is more sophisticated about there's building and engineering, but there's also a big role for nature to play in this as well. Right. And so, for instance, when you would kind of clear out an area, let's say on Staten Island, how exactly would you go about rejuvenating that area for its nature purposes? It depends on the place. So we look at the science. Um, if they were areas that were historically wetlands, mm -hmm. then you ought to be bringing wetlands back. Although we also need to be thinking about the future. And as the sea level rises, you know, wetlands are, it's kind of hard to imagine a, a plant species, but they're going to be marching inland. Um, you know, the, 
wetlands are in that zone, that intertidal zone. Um, and as the sea level rises several centimeters, they need to kind of move inland. So we're also thinking about where are those wetlands going to want to go in the future. In other places, it might be forests. So we worked out in the Jamaica Bay Wildlife Refuge with the National Park Service, and we planted about 25,000 trees and shrubs out there that are all salt tolerant. So this is a place that we know is going to be increasingly underwater in storms, but this is kind of like a first line of defense, important wildlife habitat, and it's a place where people in Brooklyn and Queens go out for walks and birding and things like that, and you want to enhance that kind of experience. So we let the science guide us about what are the plant and the native species that would do best in this place in a climate changing world, changing temperatures, sea level rise, storm surge. And like you said, there's you know two kind of ways to do this. There's harnessing the power of the nature and there's also using markets. The report that came out saying that quote, avoiding the damage requires transforming the world economy in a few years at an estimated cost of $54 trillion. How do you think the work that you do with the Nature Conservancy and New York City can work to mitigate that number or to kind of contribute in any way? I think New York has an outsized responsibility and opportunity. New York State is actually only responsible for about 3% of the carbon emissions in the United States. You know, 50 states... 3%. It's not too bad. New York City residents, we actually have a very small carbon footprint. You know, the amount of emissions that the average New Yorker has in a year are relatively low compared to the average American because we walk a lot. We take public transportation. Most of us, myself included, live in big apartment buildings, and they tend to be more efficient for heating, uh, you know, in the wintertime and things like that. So New York, I think, has an opportunity to lead and set an example. I think what Washington State is doing around creating a carbon fee is something that New York ought to be looking at. How could we do that here? The commitment to be 80% reduction in carbon pollution by 2050 is nothing to be sneezed at. That's a very significant number. We're currently planning for the largest offshore wind farm in the country. Now, we do need to remember there aren't many and they aren't that big yet. So it's not too hard to have the biggest at this point. But we are sort of staking a claim that, you know, New York's energy future is really around wind and solar and and hydro to an extent. Um, Nuclear as well is a piece of of New York's energy portfolio. Um, And I believe that that needs to be part of the portfolio for the foreseeable future because the climate threat is so great. That is a carbon-free energy source. It comes with other risks. There's no doubt about that. But given the threat of climate change, I think that plays a key part. The, the, The country, the world, there's a lot that people look to to New York. This is our opportunity. To, to set a great example. And what do you think are the first couple steps that New York could take to be the leader in this field? So I would say the first was setting these goals of 80% emissions reduction by 2050. That is a, that is a very meaningful goal and it's not going to be easy to get to, but we are seeing commitments you know, at the state and city level to try and get us there, which is fantastic. I would say the second thing we need is if we're not going to see it at the federal level is a price on carbon. And there are proposals to create a price on carbon at the national level with the current administration, with Congress. 
I'm not sure. Again, by the time this airs after Election Day, maybe there's going to be a new political geography and there might be a different opportunity. But, but let's be clear. A carbon tax is something that is supported by the right and the left, the blues, the reds, the, you know, the independents. This is not a Democrat idea or a Republican idea. This is just a good idea. So the Nature Conservancy is like a fiercely proud nonpartisan organization. You know, we talked about Bill Nordhaus and the, the, the Nobel Prize. That's something that's got to come. So if it's not going to happen at the federal level, we want to see those kinds of things happening at the state level. So we're starting to ask ourselves, what are things we can do to further reductions in carbon emissions from vehicles? So congestion pricing is on the table for New York City. That's a great idea. This idea that if you're going to drive a vehicle into the city, you ought to be paying a higher price because it's because of the amount of carbon pollution, the congestion, and then you know you use the revenue like that, put it into the subway system, which at first blush may feel like, oh, that's just like a quality of life thing, like how's the public transport? That's a key piece of our climate change solution. So making sure that people have reliable public transport, that's a great way to combat climate change. So it's kind of one of those great um, reduce emissions and invest in something that only further reduces emissions. So those are big three. Uh, Put a price on carbon, think about the transportation sector and congestion pricing in a big city like New York City. Right. And many cities in Scandinavia, I can think of Copenhagen, have had a lot of success with taxing enormous amounts on cars, depending on if you're driving in the city, if you're driving driving in rural areas. And then you see the massive bike system pop up. I mean, we're both smiling. We've both been to Copenhagen. I went there with my family uh, two summers ago. And yes, you know, standing on a corner and watching hundreds and hundreds of bicyclists go by on their way to work and these wide bike lanes and a whole culture that's built around that. And I'm watching the creation of a bike culture in New York City. I've lived in New York with my family for about 10 years now. And in that time, the number of bike lanes and to see them become better protected. And when I ride city bike or my own personal bike in the city, watching actually now drivers stop and look over their shoulder and let you go by because you have the right of way. These are all changes. It's not something that's going to happen overnight, but this goes back to this point of what are the choices we can all make in our lives about how we get to work or how we shop or how we get to wherever we're going, whether that's public transportation, whether that's walking or hopping on a bike and having a city that understands that you have rights as a cyclist and, um, you know, cars need to cede the way mm-hmm. to you. It's great to think about that, you know, the Nobel Committee is recognizing the work of carbon tax. There are cities in the world that have taken steps to mitigate their carbon use. So it's feasible. It's just going to require a lot of work. This is strictly a question of will. Mm-hmm. Everything is available to us today to solve this. And again, going back to, you know, our science shows 37% of the Paris Climate Accord goals could be met just through using and harnessing the power of nature. And I think we are. We're this incredibly creative species that when we set our minds to something like 
sending people to the moon. Um, we can do these things. And I think that's really what it's going to take is connecting around values and shared values about the world we want to live in and realizing that this is our opportunity, this challenge, this threat is our opportunity to do great things. And it reminds me, I, I was sitting in a conversation not too long ago with some Nature Conservancy trustees from New York and some Nature Conservancy trustees from Kansas. And we had an hour to talk about climate change. And you can imagine that the first... 20 or maybe it was even 30 minutes were contentious and you know folks the 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 crew from Kansas was saying you can't use the term climate change we can't talk about that that's not um that's not okay and the new yorker saying you're crazy the science is clear this is real then i forget how somebody asked the question but what came up was the Kansan trustee said what we believe in is an agrarian way of life and supporting farmers ranchers and a Kansan lifestyle and we started talking about well what does that mean and one of the things that came up was well a great way to do that is putting wind turbines on farms and ranches because you know the property owner the rancher the farmer gets a portion of the proceeds you know gets a, a royalty essentially around all the power that's being generated and what that usually does is help them buy a new pickup truck send their kids to college do the things in life that they need to do at the same time producing clean renewable green energy so it's like oh wait a minute so okay let's not call it climate change Let's figure out where our values intermingle. And then that same conversation led us to, well, they were like, the weather's changing. There's a lot more flooding in Kansas. We're not going to call it climate change. We're going to say there's a lot more flooding. Well, what could we do about that? And then that led to a whole discussion about the role of nature in floodplains and better protecting Kansan communities that way. So there are ways to come together to recognize where our values meet. And I think that's really what we need to be focused on and the will that will emerge from that. This conversation, this discussion will not be won or lost around science. The science is clear. We actually need to set that aside and have the values conversation. And as we've been discussing, we need massive change in order to accomplish the goals that have been set for us in the IPCC report. So what can people do to put those goals in motion? I think of several things. The first is voting and the things you care about will be represented through the votes we cast. The second thing I would say is Think about the things that one can do in one's life. And in a city, that might be slightly different than a suburban or rural area, but there are things we can do in all of these different places where we live. I mean, when I we moved here from Denver, Colorado, we, we were in the city, but we had a freestanding home on a on a corner lot on a block. And that you know, the things that people can do, we've registered for the wind energy provision for our power to make a market statement about we believe in wind and clean renewable energy. That's how we want our power delivered. You know, we composted as a family. We I started riding my bike to work. Now as a, a New York City resident, we don't even own a car anymore. Um, so there are choices we make every single day that both affect the amount of carbon pollution we produce and also send market signals. And then the other thing folks can do is offset the emissions they do have. So one of the things I do at the end of every December, you know, usually on 
winter break, the time between Christmas and New Year's, when I'm off from work, I'll sit down and kind of do the estimate. How many flights did we take this year? Um, how many miles did we drive? And I can do a calculation about, okay, we produce this amount of carbon pollution. I'm going to offset that on behalf of the family through investing in tree planting. And so you can sign up and the Nature Conservancy does this. There's Terra Pass. There are other ways that people can offset their individual, their families or their company's emissions. Um, and then I think the fourth thing is know your risk. Um, so here in New York, um, the Nature Conservancy created a, a website, coastalresilience.org, where if you live in low-lying coastal areas, you can go on this website and type in information about where you live and see what the level of threat is to where you work, where you live. You know, the New York Times recently had a story about uh, typing in your zip code and what's the flooding risk there. So my mom and stepdad live on the Gulf Coast of Florida, and I typed in their address, and sure enough, it told me what I've been telling them for a long time. They're starting to see we'll call it like sunny day flooding, sea level rise in their vicinity. And the storms are only going to get bigger and more intense. Uh, And, you know, the good news is they're not planning to stay there forever. Probably about the time that it's going to get really, really tough, they will have, you know, relocated inland. But I think being aware of the level of threat to your family, to your business, that's something that people ought to do. And I think that helps trigger more action like, oh my goodness, this is real. I want to play a part. And is there anything else that you want to add about either the IPCC report, just the work you're doing at the Nature Conservancy or anything at all? I I guess I just really like to hone in on this part about the science is clear Climate change is caused by us. The science debate is not going to get us to the solutions. It's really about connecting about the things that we care about and connecting as people. And so the, our safety, our well-being, the quality of our neighborhoods. So am I, the New York executive director of the Nature Conservancy, willing to have a conversation where I know that the threat is climate change and discard that term and set it aside? Absolutely. Because I think this is about, in our modern world, with politics divisive the way they are, we need to set some of that aside to to connect around the values, around future generations, about property rights, about a connection to nature. And maybe that's for some photographing and bird watching. For others, it might be hunting and fishing. But the, this love of the outdoors that so many have, when we can start having the conversation that way and then recognizing the power of nature to help solve this, um, that we don't have to separate ourselves from the coast with 10 or 15 foot high walls, but we can actually harness the power of nature and, and enjoy the benefits that's the world that I want to live in. And what we've realized is we got to get going. That's the story of the IPCC report. Let's get going now. All right. That was Emma Tyrell's interview with Bill Olfelder, the New York Executive Director for The Nature Conservancy. You can learn more about Bill's work and the work of The Nature Conservancy, as well as more details on the recent IPCC report on the show notes page for this episode. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC167. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wild Lens Collective, Today's episode was produced by Emma Tyrell. 
Our theme music is by The Humidors. 